I'll tell you, every time I see that it's the women's ensemble that is going to be leading us in worship, I know that we are about to be lifted up into the heavenlies, and we were not disappointed today, ladies. Thank you for that wonderful gift. Well, I want to introduce you to our newest chapel hillbilly. Here is Michael Reed Hackman, born last Sunday at... 234 and weighing in at a whopping 9.36 pounds, Megan gave birth to a toddler. <laughs> He's eating small pieces of steak now. I, uh, I went over in the early part of the week to just rock the baby. I had to have physical therapy later in the week because the kid is huge. I think it's a wonderful kindness of the Lord that, that Reed was born uh, on that day at the end of a very hard and painful week of loss at the end of a celebration of St. Andrew's Sunday when we were looking back at the generations that have gone before us. It was a kindness of the Lord to remind us, hey, I'm not done with you. Every baby that is born is a reminder that the Lord still has work for us to do. He's going to raise up a new generation to do his work in his world. And so life goes on. And, uh, and, and we have been particularly blessed. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid there's something in the water here because our staff, you know, the Palmers have their brand new Bennett and of course Ezra White. And so we are doing our part to populate this world just on the staff alone. And uh, it is such a blessing. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are continuing in our year-long journey through the story. The story is an abridged version of the Bible, but it is the Bible. And we're looking at the high points and the characters and the major themes and really in some ways trying to rise above and look at the, the mega meta narrative of what God is doing. We're being reminded that it's not a bunch of stories taped together. It is one big story, God's story. And we're particularly looking at what we're calling the scarlet thread, the appearances of Jesus, not just in Matthew, two-thirds of the way into the book, but from the earliest moments of Scripture, we see the, the glimpses, the whispers of Christ who will one day make his appearance in Bethlehem. Uh, so that's what we're about, and, uh, and last week, we, uh, it was a big week for us, because finally, after 470 years since God made his promise to Abram, God has led his people into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. The waters of Jordan were divided. They went in. They had the great battle of Jericho. And so began one hard battle after another after another. And through these people, as God kept his promise, he accomplished a couple of things. Obviously, they got a foothold in the promised land. But honestly, they also brought judgment against really wicked people who were inhabiting the land at uh, the time. So that's what we, where we reached by the end of last week. How many of you are being good, dutiful students and read chapter 7? Raise your hand. Look at that. Just keep your hand up. Just look around. I'm so proud of you. It's awesome. And if you haven't jumped in yet, okay, you can put your hand down. Now, that's a little bit braggadocious. Um, if, uh, if you haven't started, I just urge you to, uh, to jump in with us. And next week, it's going to be the book of Judges. So... Um, we ended last week with Joshua's wonderful benediction. Remember his speech to his people, and then this benediction that is so familiar and so inspiring. Uh, maybe we'll read it together. Could I see it up here? Read it together. Go. Choose for yourselves this day which gods you will follow, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
What a wonderful challenge to our legacy, isn't it? Uh, What I didn't share with you was the response of the people, and I've given you a little abbreviated version. In Joshua 24, 16, we read, The people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. But Joshua's not going to let him up off the mat, and so he comes back at him again, and he said, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you. After he has been good to you, the people reply, no, we will serve the Lord. Actually, that exchange happens four times. We will serve the Lord. And that's how it ends. The people promise that they're going to throw away any foreign gods that they still have around from the old days. And they're going to serve the Lord only. Although it makes you wonder, why do you still have any foreign gods hanging around? But they promise they're going to do it. And actually, things look pretty good for a while. When you open your reading for this week, you'll find in in Judges chapter 2, these words. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. So it looks good. Things are going well. Unfortunately, it didn't last. And so let me read to you the rest of of, uh, that portion of Judges chapter 2. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baals and Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. This is the regretful word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, speak to us through this hard word. It is so disappointing to us. It's even more disappointing when we look to our own lives and realize our tendency to move in the same way. So God, brace us, strengthen us, and warn us through your word today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have been to Sunday school any time in your life, certainly along the way you heard about the god Baal, right? Raise your hand if you're somewhere along the way. Actually, Baal was not one god. <clears throat> it was a, a word that was used to describe a number of gods, but all of them were represented by one idol, one image, and that was the bull. 
That was the bull, okay? So this image of male virility. And then you heard also mentioned the Asherah. The Asherah were the, the goddesses. The male and the female, the Baal and the Asherah were the goddesses. And ironically, the Asherah were represented by large, large poles that were set up on the hills. If you walked around the region, uh, you would see these poles on, on high, and they were all places of worship, the high places of worship to the Asherah. They were very intentionally, very explicitly phallic symbols representative of, the, uh, of, the, of, their, of their idol worship. And so you have the virility of the bull, you have the fertility of the Asherah, and the whole of their worship in this idolatry was very sexualized. If you went to worship in one of their temples, also up on the high places, their temple worship consisted of you having sex with one of the temple prostitutes, a priestess. So it's almost impossible to overstate how sexualized this idolatry was. So listen again to the last verses, the last verse I read to you. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. In other words, instead of representing God as a holy nation, which he had called them to do, they were being absorbed into the sexualized culture surrounding them. You heard it twice in my reading, and you're going to read it several, tar- several times more. In fact, seven times in the book of Judges, you read the same words. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's shorthand for saying that they abandoned Yahweh and began to whore after other gods, which is the language that is actually used. And when this happened... God would say, fine, enough of you. He would lift his hand of blessing and protection. They would be invaded by raiders from outside, persecuted and oppressed cruelly. And they would suffer and finally they would rise up with a voice. They would repent. They would turn back to God. And God in his unbelievable faithfulness would hear their cry and he would send another judge to save them and set them free. This cycle repeats itself again and again and again and again and again. When we hear the word judge, we think of someone in a robe with a gavel who's dispensing justice. But these judges that you're going to read about are more than that. They were a combination of spiritual leader, prophet, and warrior, general, uh, great warriors. Um, Each of these persons was called by God and anointed with his Holy Spirit at a time when the Spirit was given and taken very, very selectively. The Holy Spirit would be given and then taken back. And, uh, and each of these judges had this anointing on them. There were 12 judges who are mentioned in the book of Judges over a period of 400 years. And some of them we know nothing more than their names. Tola and Jair and Elon. Others we know some juicy tidbits about. Like Ehud. Ehud is the one who assassinated the massive Moabite king named uh, Eglon. Uh, He snuck a short sword into the palace and stabbed it into his enormous belly and it swallowed up the sword and he just walked away and left it there. Yummy. Happy Halloween. But there are three judges whose stories are more familiar to us. One of them is a woman. What's her name? Deborah. There's another, a mighty man, the mighty warrior they called Gideon, remember? And then finally a rascal, Samson. Rascal named Samson. I want to talk to you about Deborah. You're going to read about the rest of them this week, and I hope you will. I want to talk about one. 
Deborah was a prophetess in a culture and in a time where women were not considered spiritual leaders. Deborah had the anointing of the Holy Spirit and was so viewed as being so wise and so profound and so insightful that she sat under a tree that ended up being named after her. Deborah's palm, and people would come from far and wide to seek the advice of this godly, powerful judge named Deborah. At the time that she was judging, the uh, people of Israel were groaning under the oppression of the Canaanites, uh, and had been for about 20 years, 20 cruel years. They were being dominated by the army that was headed up by a man named Sisera. Say Sisera going to have a part to play in this story. Sisera was the the general of this army and had 900 iron chariots. It's hard for you to imagine that, but it was the equivalent of the Abram tank at the time. And uh, and if you had an army in front of you and you had 900 iron chariots bearing down on the army, you didn't have a chance. You didn't have a chance. So when Deborah receives a word from the Lord that it's time to cast off the Canaanite yoke, and she calls General Barak to her and says, God says it's time to fight off the Canaanites. He was a little reticent. He knew about the 900 chariots. But she said, you've got to do this. God says to do it. And so with great reluctance, finally, he agrees. And they, they, the, the battle is joined on the, the Jezreel Valley, on the plain of Jezreel, below Mount Tabor. Here's Mount Tabor. And uh, it is one of my favorite spots. There's no question that that is Mount Tabor. And when you stand on the top, you can see a a tiny little speck that's actually a beautiful uh, church up there. One of my favorite things to do is to stand up there and read this account of this battle as you're looking down in the valley where all of this took place. And, uh, and the way that God uh, managed to uh, overcome the, uh, the Canaanite army is this. The chariots were bearing down on the Israelites, but the swamp land, the swampy areas were great. And the, 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 the uh, wheels of the chariots dug in and stuck there. And the Israelites suddenly turned on the charioteers, pulled them from the chariots and slaughtered them. And so they won. It was a great victory. Sisera, great and brave leader that he was, he ran away. He ran away and he found the, the tent of a man named Heber. And his wife was home at the time. J.L. was her name. And so she invited General Sisera into her tent. She was very solicitous. She gave him some warm milk. Read it. She said, why don't you take a nap? You look tired. So she laid him down and she covered him up with a banky and he went to sleep. And then she took a tent peg and a hammer and drove it through his head. Right into the ground. You know, two things happened. The Canaanites, uh, the oppression was thrown off for 20 years. That's one thing. And Jael's husband stopped taking naps. (laughs) They didn't do much camping either. So as you read this story, as you read through this chapter, you're going to find it engaging. You're going to find it violent. You're also going to find it disturbing. Because honestly, you think that the judges ought to be more virtuous. I mean, that is what you would hope to see, that the judges were so virtuous. As a matter of fact, every one of them was deeply flawed. Gideon, who leads this great victory with 300 men against 135,000, Gideon ends up leading his people back into idolatry. Samson was just nothing more than an unrepentant horn dog who couldn't keep his zipper up. And the only one who was really unwaveringly faithful was Deborah. 
But why should this surprise us? If we think back to the story so far, every single one of the characters has been flawed, haven't they? Abram was a liar and a doubter. Jacob was a swindler. Moses was a murderer. And we're reminded every time we read another chapter, the story is not about the people. The story is about the God of the people, the faithfulness of the God of his people, the faithfulness to his promises. It's a good thing he is faithful because the people were not. As I told you seven times, you're going to read these words. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's like a death toll, a death knell ringing through the book. Every page you turn, the, evil did I, the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And each time God withdraws his hand, each time they suffer, each time they repent, each time they cry out, and the Lord sends a deliverer. Once again they are delivered, and once again the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The, the decades of suffering they experienced because they abandoned God's ways and chased after these sexualized gods of their pagan culture. It is such a frustrating cycle, but it really isn't until the last verse of the book of Judges that we get a glimpse into why the people kept failing so disastrously. So I want to urge you to take a look at that very carefully, even in your own Bible. The very last verse in the book of Judges says this, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. By the way, do you see the scarlet thread there? The hint, there was no king, not yet. Tuck that one away. We're going to come back to it. But I want you to look at the last nine words in that verse. Everyone did what was right in his eyes. Say it with me. Let's see. A culture that worships sex a culture when there's no, where there's no such thing as right and wrong, but rather where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Hmm. Does that sound familiar to you? Could you find a better description of our own American culture than this? Our culture worships sex. And with every passing year, hard as it seems, our Baal worship becomes more and more bizarre. This last week, Glamour Magazine, one of my personal favorites, (laughs) announced their appointment of the woman of the year. Do you know who it was? Caitlyn Jenner. I do not understand why the women of this country don't rise up in outrage at this lunacy. This haunting diagnosis, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, has a word, has two words actually, a phrase today. We call it moral relativism. Would you say that please? It is a phrase you ought to know, a concept that you ought to be familiar with. And I'll give you the definition right out of Google. (laughs) No better place. Moral relativism is the view that ethical standards, morality, and positions of right or wrong are culturally based and therefore subject to a person's individual choice, we can all decide what is right for ourselves. Right out of Judges, isn't it? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the prevailing philosophy of our culture. You do understand this. And it is captured in the the words of an author, Pat Murphy, who writes, I had to realize that the truth isn't always the same for everyone. I had to realize that my truth may not be the same as your truth. 
May I just say as clearly as I know how, poppycock, that is balderdash. There is no such thing as your truth or my truth. There is truth. Truth is not a possession. It is an objective reality. And there's only one person who can define truth. And that is God who is the author of reality. When someone says, you have your truth and I have my truth, their underlying statement really is this. I reject the idea that there is a God who determines what is right and wrong. I will be my own God. I will decide what is true based upon my own feelings and preferences. And when you go there, you have plunged into idolatry. We are living in a time that is absolutely analogous to that time that sucked the life out of the Hebrew people. And interestingly, then as now, the issues of sexuality are often the back door through which false religion enters and takes possession of our minds, of our souls, of our marriages, of our kids, of our churches, of our country. I can think of four Christian organizations that matter to me, which have over the last year begun to wobble. They've begun to wobble on God's definition of marriage, wobbled on God's definition of sexuality, wobbled on God's definition of gender, and wobbled on orthodoxy. And the problem is, if you dare to take a stand, if you dare to say, that is not right, that is a betrayal of your mission, it is a betrayal of God's ordained order of doing things, and it will wreak destruction in our society. If you dare to say that, then there's a knee-jerk reaction. You are a... All of those things. You are a hater. You are a hater. You are a bully. May I just say, you do not have to be a hater to say that men are men and women are women. You do not have to be a bully to say God created marriage between a man and a woman for the propagation and protection of children and for the good of society. That is not hateful. That is true. But when you live in a time and place where everyone does what is right in his own eyes, it becomes increasingly risky to take such a stand. But take such a stand we must surely Surely one of the calls of the church today must be to lovingly, graciously, but courageously speak the truth of God's word. And if the book of Judges teaches us anything, it is that with the anointing of God's spirit, the least likely person can make a difference in this upside down society. Like a football coach in Bremerton named Joe Kennedy who refuses to stop praying after a football game. Or like a man like Brad Henning who continues to go into the public schools with the counter-cultural message that sex is a precious gift to be offered only in a relationship of marriage. Or like a young man like Justin Bodeju. Justin is the new Whitworth University student body president. Last spring, when I went back on the board, a small group of radical students took it upon themselves to pressure the board of trustees to adopt a resolution to change its policy on sexual standards. It was a very divisive and disruptive act. 
and we refused to take it up at that time. We said we would revisit it in the fall. But two weeks ago at our board meeting, Justin, the new student body president, uh, asked to speak to the board of trustees. And he stood before uh, this rather august and intimidating body of leaders. And he said these words. Last spring, a group of activist students tried to pressure you to pass a resolution. But I am here to say that their efforts were destructive and not in the best interests of our university. Our students are tired of being pressured. And as president of the student body, I am rescinding the request for the resolution that was placed before you. Instead of pushing an activist political agenda, I am going to focus the efforts of my administration on emphasizing the historic Christ-centered mission of Whitworth University. When he was done, you could have heard a pin drop in the place. And in my 20 years on the board, I have never been more proud and I've never experienced a more powerful moment. All because one student filled with the Holy Spirit had the courage to stand up and say, Not on my watch! As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord! These are inspiring stories, aren't they? But we cannot depend upon Joe Kennedy and Brad Henning and Justin Bodeju to carry our spiritual water. Every household here, every individual here, every student here must be emboldened to take a stand, to resist the intimidations and the temptations of our sexualized and materialistic and, and idolatrous culture. We cannot fob this off on someone else. We must speak. And you know the difference between the judges and us? One big one. Every single believer in this place is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Not some of you for some time. Everyone who claims the name of Christ is filled with the glorious Shekinah Holy Spirit. It may seem that we are outnumbered, that we are surrounded by an increasingly antagonistic culture, that everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. But never underestimate the impact of one spirit-filled, courageous, faithful person who takes a stand for Christ and against the idolatry of our time. And so the question that begs to be asked this day is, will you be that person?